Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Chapter 52 is uh, it's kind of a summation uh, of what happened to Judah and uh, Jerusalem when Babylon uh, conquered it. It addresses the reasons why it occurred. And the reason why, you know, Israel was a blessed nation. God had said, uh, if you obey my commandments, if you follow my, you know, my, my uh, teachings, if you, if you don't adopt the idolatry of the nations around you, I'm going to bless you. And uh, for many years, God blessed the nation of Israel uh, but they started slipping into idolatry. So they started picking up the, the idol worship of the nations around. They turned their backs on God. God continually sent uh, his messengers, the prophets, to warn the people, to, to, to get them to change, to, to get them to turn around. And uh, they didn't do it. And generation after generation after generation. And they did have a few times of reform. I mean, it wasn't just continually down. But they did have some. Like Josiah was a, a good king of, of uh, um, Judah. And he instituted some reforms for the nation. Uh, but his sons after him, uh, they slipped right back into that idolatry. And as a result of their sin... And God had warned them plenty of times they ended up going into captivity with Babylon. And so this is kind of uh, just kind of a summation, this chapter 52. And uh, it, I think from it, there's some things that we can learn uh, about sin. But there's also, it's very interesting. I don't know if you read the chapter ahead of time or maybe you know this chapter. Um, the very ending of this, of this chapter is very curious and uh, it's very, I think it's very uh, interesting and something that we can learn from too. So, beginning with verse 1, Isaiah 52. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. So he's being compared to Jehoiakim. Who was Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim was one of the sons of King Josiah. Josiah was a good king, but unlike his father, Jehoiakim was conceited, he was hard-hearted, and he was wicked. In fact, you know, God had sent Jeremiah to prophesy to the nation to urge them to, to repent and to turn back. And uh, Jehoiakim wanted to kill uh, Jeremiah several times. So he was a very wicked man. Well, Zedekiah, his brother, also uh, sinned after, you know, sinned in the same pattern as Jehoiakim did. Verse 3, For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, till he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now, it's interesting when you read that verse. I'm reading out of the New King James. And I don't know if you all have the, the New King James. Maybe you're reading from a different version. Depending on what version you read of this verse, it's kind of a little bit of a different, seems like a little bit of a different message. Um, because in this verse, uh, it says, after, you know, after he finally cast him out from his presence, it says, then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Well, I have a literal translation here, Green's literal translation. It says this, 
and he did evil in the eyes of Jehovah, speaking about Zedekiah, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For it was because of the anger of Jehovah in, uh, anger of Jehovah in Jerusalem and Judah that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon until Jehovah had cast them out from his face. A little bit of a different you know, uh, thing to it. Um, the King James Version says, And he did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah, till he cast them out from his presence, that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. You might say, man, I don't, I don't, I'm not following you. That's okay. Um, I'm not following me either. <laughs> um, what I'm getting at here. I think the verse is clear that God brought on the destruction of Jerusalem. God cast them out of his sight. But the question, and I think the, the different versions kind of shed some light on it, did God cause Zedekiah to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar? And that leads us to a larger question. Does God cause a person to sin? I don't know if you've ever said this or thought this, you know, you, you, you've, there's been a temptation before you and you fell for that temptation and you went into sin. And afterwards, you're like, man, God, why didn't you stop me? Why didn't you warn me? Why didn't, why didn't you keep me from sinning? And you say, you know, God's all powerful. Isn't he powerful enough to keep me from sinning against him? I mean, it's a good question, right? You know, God instructs and warns us about sin through his word, the Bible. He also convicts the world of sin by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, when you and I become a, a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells the heart of the believer. And He speaks to us. He speaks to our hearts. He warns us. He instructs us. He guides us. Not only that, but God even sends other people into our path who speak to us. You know, that try to encourage us, or maybe if we're, if we're, you know, we're sinning or something, they might say, hey, brother, you know, or sister, you know, can I pray for you? Or, you know, I see this in your life, and it's just not good. And even God sends others. You know, Zedekiah had Jeremiah the prophet to speak truth to him. But here's the point. If you and I continually and stubbornly refuse the instruction and we refuse to heed the warnings... God gives people over to their sinful leanings. God doesn't cause people to sin, but God gives them over. What, what do you mean? What are you talking about? I think we see this principle throughout the Bible. In Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, he talks about God giving up people to their sins to do those things which are not right. Uh, we see it in the life of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, in the book of Exodus, you know, uh, God kept sending Moses to Pharaoh and warning him. And, and Pharaoh kept on saying, you know, I'm not going to let you know, my people go. Or I'm not going to let the people go. And so then God sent plagues on Egypt. And after each one of those plagues, and you guys probably, if you've watched the Ten Commandments, you know, who was the, I forgot the actor that played Pharaoh. But anyways, Yul Brenner, thank you. You know, Charlton Heston was Moses. <laughs> Moses. But anyways, so even if you don't know the Bible story, but you've maybe seen the movie, it's, it's pretty close, I think, anyways. But, you know, after each plague, Pharaoh would start to maybe like, okay, I'm going to let the people go. And then he would change his mind. And when you read in the Bible, for one of the plagues, for example, in Exodus 8.15, it says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart 
and did not heed them as the Lord had said. I mean, he hardened his heart. But then later on, another plague, Exodus 8.32, it says, But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, neither would he let the people go. However, and this is just one verse I quoted here, but Exodus 9.12, it says, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did, did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So, you know, yeah, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, but then the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And basically what it is, is, is God just says, okay, you're, you're not going to listen to me, you're not going to heed me, I'm just going to give you over to that. And then, of course, you're going to pay the consequences of whatever he's giving you over to. Well, Zedekiah was one of Josiah's sons. If you know the story of Josiah, you know, here they are, they've, they've neglected the worship of the Lord. They haven't had a Passover in years and centuries, you know, generations, basically. And the temple had just fallen into disrepair, and it was basically like just this old junky place. And so Josiah sent some people in to start rebuilding the temple. And while they're in there digging around, they come across a scroll of the Lord. It's God's word. And they go, wow, the king's got to see this. And they bring it to Josiah. And the priests read it to Josiah. And he just starts weeping. And he just starts tearing his clothes. And he goes, man, we've, we've gone so far from the Lord. And so Josiah started reforms in the land. And Zedekiah was one of Josiah's sons. Uh, we don't know how old he was. But he probably, if he was old enough, he probably witnessed that transformation in his father's life. When God's word got a hold of Josiah. You see, it's God's word that gets a hold of people. And God's word got a hold of Josiah and it transformed him. And Zedekiah saw that. Zedekiah wasn't the next king either after Josiah. There were some other brothers and even an uncle that were, was king. It was just, it's kind of weird when you read the, read the story. But Zedekiah also watched some of the kings before him and watched how they rebelled against God and how God they ended up going into captivity before he did. And so he had lots of examples to watch, to, to, to learn from. And he had people like Jeremiah warning him about his sinful lifestyle. The thing is, Zedekiah ignored all of that. And so God gave Zedekiah over to his sinful leanings. In other words, he stopped trying to prevent Zedekiah from sinning. He just stopped because his heart's too hard. So my first point that I think we can learn from this chapter about sin is that God doesn't cause us to sin, yet he will give us up to our sinful leanings if we continually disregard his warnings. He'll allow your heart to get hardened. That's the danger. You know when you hear a message, you hear a gospel message, and, and you know, you go, yeah, yeah, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, and, you know, I just, I'm not ready to, or, you know, whatever. Every time you say no, your heart gets just a little bit harder, a little bit harder. Every time the Holy Spirit convicts you, like, you know what, what you're doing is sin, and you go, yeah, I know, but, you know, I, I just don't know what to do. And, uh, you know, every time you ignore that and you don't respond, your heart gets just a little bit harder. And it's a dangerous thing when you get to the point, it's a bad thing when you get to the point where God says, you know what, your heart's too hard. I can't do anything with you. That's, that's a bad place to be. Verse 4, chapter 52. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and camped against it. 
And they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled and went out of the city at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around, and they went by way of the plain. The Babylonian method of conquering a fortified and a protected city, you know, the cities, they had walls around them. You know, if you watch some of the old uh, movies, like, you know, around the time of Robin Hood, they had moats and stuff. I don't know if they had moats here, but... Um, they had walls, high walls and gates to protect the inhabitants of the city. And so the Babylonian method for conquering a city like that, they would just surround the city. They would cut off any supplies going into the city. No one could come in. No one could go out. And they would just wait and just wait. And uh, after the daily rations were used up, and this literally happened in Jerusalem, the people resorted to cannibalism. I mean, there's nothing to eat. And they were physically weakened, and they were demoralized. And all the Babylonians had to do was sit and wait. They didn't have to, they didn't have to shed us, you know, they didn't have to do anything, any kind of fighting. But once they waited long enough, then they just set up their battering machines. They broke down the walls with little or no resistance. Then they conquered the inhabitants of the land, of the city. That was their method. A lot of other nations later on, the Romans did the same thing. Uh, you know, that was uh, a time-tested way of, of conquering your enemy, was just to surround them, cut them off, isolate them, and wait. And you know what? You and I have an enemy that tries that same tactic with us all the time. You see, the devil will keep you preoccupied. He'll keep you distracted so that you neglect your daily food, your daily rations of God's Word. He'll, get, he'll keep you so preoccupied that you don't have time to read God's Word, or you don't have time to pray, you don't have time to be in His presence. Or He'll isolate you from fellowship. Man, I just can't make it to church today. And, and, and you know, things will happen. Things will pop up that's like, I can't go to church today, or I, I can't get in fellowship. You know, or I just, man, I'm too busy, I can't read the Word. And the enemy, all he has to do is just sit and wait, and wait. Because as you're not getting that food, as you're not getting that fellowship, you're getting weaker and weaker, and you're getting demoralized. And, you know, you can only go so long on, on last week's reading of the Word. You know, I mean, yeah, it's great for that day, and maybe you can last a couple days. So, you know, I remember a few days ago, God spoke to my heart about that. And, you know, that's cool. But after a while, you can't live your life on last week's time with the Lord. You need to have a daily time with the Lord so He can refresh your spirit. I need it. Man, I need it in my life because, man, I sin. <laughs> you know, and I sin often. And so, you know, I need God's Word to guide me. I need, I need reminders. I need to spend time repenting and asking the Lord, man, please forgive me for what I did, you know. Um, I, especially if you're driving in traffic. You know, I do a lot of repenting when I'm in traffic. but <laughs> It's not so bad here. California used to be really bad, but... Um, they shoot people out there. They don't necessarily do that here. But, um, you know, the enemy will seek to distract you, to isolate you, and to get you out of God's Word. And then he'll just wait. And then eventually, those walls 
And, and, you know, in our hearts, we have walls like, you know, I would never commit adultery. That's a wall. There. There's a wall there. there I'm never going to do that. You know, or, or I'm, I'm never going to cheat or steal on my taxes. You know, I'm not going to cheat or do, you know, I'm not going to lie. You know, we've got all these things that, that man, there's sins over there and I'm here. And I'm not going to, nothing's going to pass. I'm not going to do that. But you know what? If you get out of fellowship, you get out of the word of God, you get out of time and prayer before the Lord, eventually those walls break down. And eventually the enemy gets you and you start sinning in those areas. It happens, folks. It's a time-tested method of battle. And the Bible says you and I are not weary, or it says we're not uh, unaware of the devil's schemes. And yet how often do we neglect those things that we need to do to remain strong? I mean, it's, sometimes it's, it, we just neglect it. And so point two, I think, about sin that we can learn If we neglect being in God's word and we neglect fellowship, we set ourselves up for defeat. Plain and simple. Well, the Babylonians surrounded the city and waited. And here in this verse here, Zedekiah and his soldiers, they didn't wait for the Babylonians to breach the wall and invade it. They kind of broke through the wall from the inside out. And they tried to escape under the cover of darkness. But verse 8, it says, But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him, so they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he killed all the princes of Judah in Riblah. He also put out the eyes of Zedekiah. And the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters, took him to Babylon, and put him in prison till the day of his death. God, there's another prophet that, uh, as far as we can tell, Jeremiah didn't know him, Ezekiel. We're going to be getting to the book of Ezekiel pretty soon. Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah, another prophet. And Ezekiel was given a prophecy by God that describes this exact event that took place. Again, another warning to Israel, another warning to Zedekiah. But in Ezekiel 12, verse 10, it says this, Say to them, thus says the Lord God, the burden, this burden concerns the prince, that would have been Zedekiah, in Jerusalem, and all the house of Israel who are among them. Say, I am assigned to you, as I have done, so it shall be done to them. They shall be carried away into captivity. And the prince... Again, Zedekiah, who is among them, shall bear his belongings on his shoulders at twilight and go out. They shall dig through the wall to carry them out through it. He shall cover his face so they cannot see the ground with his eyes. I will also spread my net over him, and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of Chaldeans. Yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. I will scatter to every wind all who are around him to help him and all his troops, and I will draw out the sword after them. What an amazing prophecy in Ezekiel about this exact event that took place. The prince Zedekiah and his soldiers would sneak out of the city at night under the cover of darkness. He'd cover his face because, you know, people would recognize, hey, there's the king. You know, what's he doing? What's he doing abandoning the city? So he didn't want anybody to recognize him, so he covered his face so he couldn't be seen. And they would be captured out in the, in the plains there. And his men would scatter from him. He'd be brought to Babylon. 
But he wouldn't see Babylon because the king, Nebuchadnezzar, gouged out his eyes. Can you imagine how the, the last memory, the last visual memory that Zedekiah had was his sons being killed right before his eyes? Talk about, that's cruel. <laughs> I mean, that's beyond cruel. That's like, that's just, that's barbaric. But you see, Zedekiah continued to ignore God's warnings. And the consequences of sin is barbaric, folks. It's disaster. It's terrible. You know, Jeremiah had urged Zedekiah that if he surrendered to the Babylonians, he'd be all right. But Jeremiah, excuse me, Zedekiah refused to heed the warning, and that was his last memory, watching his sons being executed. And then he was blinded and hauled off to Babylon to die there. Verse 12. Now in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of the king Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard who served the king of, of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house. And all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard uh, broke down all the walls of Jerusalem all around. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poor people and the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the craftsmen. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. And if you remember a couple chapters before, Jeremiah was one of those who was the king. You know, he recognized that Jeremiah had been warning them to surrender to the Babylonians. And so when they finally were conquered, Nebuchadnezzar said, hey, if you find Jeremiah, let him go. Treat him well. And so they said, Jeremiah, do you want to, we'll treat you well. You come to Babylon with us. And Jeremiah said, no, I'll stay with the captives. And and so um, there were people that were left in the land. And that's what the Babylonians did, too, because, you know, uh, they didn't want the land to become fallow and, and infested with wild animals and everything. So they would leave the poor in the land to basically take care of the land that they had conquered. Verse 17, the bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the bowls, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered, the basins, the firepans, the bowls, the pots, the lampstands, the spoons, and the cups, whatever was solid gold and whatever was solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea, the twelve bronze bowls which were under it, and the carts which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. You know, if you if you go into the where it, I think it's in King in first first Kings, I think it is, maybe it's second Kings, where it describes the building of the temple. It's fantastic, Solomon's temple. Uh, continuing, he says, Now concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was eighteen cubits. A measuring line of twelve cubits could measure its circumference. And its thickness was four fingers. It was hollow. A capital of bronze was on it, and the height of one capital was five cubits with a network of pomegranates all around the capital, all of bronze. The second pillar the po with pomegranates was the same. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides. All the pomegranates all around on the network were 100. We're getting kind of a detailed description 
of the, the temple that Solomon built. And it was, it was a, one of the wonders of the world. It was glorious. And, and I think what they're doing here, what Jeremiah is doing in recording all this, remembering the beauty and the glory of Solomon's temple heightened the bitterness of their loss as they were watching it all getting broken and taken out. It was like all that glory. When, when Solomon was king, I mean, that was the glory days of Israel. And afterward, it just started going downhill after that because of sin, because of idolatry. And again, it got to the point where everything that was so glorious, now it's, it's gone and it's being destroyed and it's being carted off to a foreign country. And it was all because of their sin. And so just seeing that glory and then seeing what, they're, what they were losing, it was, just, it was bitter for them. You know, when you and I are tempted, being tempted to sin, the last thing the devil wants you to consider is what you're going to risk losing. That's the last thing, you know. It's like, look at this. Look at whatever it is you're tempted by. You know, look at this. For me, it's a bowl of ice cream. Look at that bowl of ice cream. No. You know, whatever, whatever you're tempted with, it's like, look at, I mean, the pleasure. And, oh, man, i got to have it. And, oh. But he doesn't want you to think about what's going to be the consequence after that. I think if we would just stop and realize what's at stake, that alone would be enough to deter us from giving in. You know, it's interesting. After 70 years of captivity, the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls and the temple. And for the younger generation that maybe they were born in, in Babylon, you know, because of 70 years, you know, they were young. Maybe they're in their 30s or 40s or so, and they're coming back, and they're all excited. Man, we've, we've heard about the, you know, we've heard about Jerusalem, we've heard about the temple. Now we get to rebuild it. And they were so pumped up. And, man, this is, good. This is going to be great. We're free and everything. But you know what the Bible says? There were men that were older than 70 that had seen Solomon's temple. They had seen the glory of Solomon's temple. They were weeping because they're like, man, there's, look, this is nothing compared to the glory that we once had. I wonder how many people weep when they realize, man, I, 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 was, in a, man, I was so blessed and stuff, and I blew it so bad with my sin. And it's a bitter place. It's, it's a bad thing to have to think about that weeping over the glory that was lost. And so point three, the pleasures of sin are fleeting. You can read that in Hebrews 11.25. And they lead to shame and regret. Paul writes in Romans 6.21, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. You know, sin looks great on the surface. And it looks, you know, you got to have it or whatever. You know, you got to do it, whatever it is. But there's a price to pay, and it's a bitter price. Well, verse 24. The captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest. Now, we read about a Sariah in chapter 51. It's not the same person. The captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war, seven men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the principal scribe of the army who mustered uh, the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. At Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them, put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. Verse 28. These 
are the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. Yeah, 3,023 Jews. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Jews 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. You see, there was like a, I think it was like a 12-year span, roughly, that Nebuchadnezzar had, you know, been kind of dealing with Jerusalem. And he had, you know, basically there were three waves of captivity that occurred. First in 597 B.C., then in 587 B.C., and then the final one was in 581 B.C. But think about this. Each successive wave of captivity, each time they saw people getting carted off and going to Babylon, that was an opportunity for those that were left in the city to humble themselves and repent. It was a reminder, hey, the same thing can happen to you if you don't repent. Point four, God gives us ample warnings to turn from our sin. You see the warnings in others. You see people whose lives are destroyed by alcohol or drugs or sexual immorality or whatever, and you see what happens to them, and it's a warning for you and I. This can happen to you too if you don't humble yourselves and repent and turn back to the Lord. Well, now we get to the end of chapter 52 and basically the end of the book of Jeremiah. And what an amazing ending. What a curious ending. Verse 31. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the uh, 25th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings uh, who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death and all the days of his life. Well, who's Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim in the Bible is also known as Jeconiah. He's also known as Coniah. So if you read those names, it's the same person. Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, and Coniah. He was a very wicked son of Jehoiakim, another king. He only reigned three months, and he was hauled off, carried off to Babylon, and he lived 37 more years in Babylon. Jeconiah, or Coniah, was cursed by God because of his wickedness. There's there's verse in there that's just a curse on Jeconiah. So think about this. He only reigned three months. In Jerusalem, he's cursed by God. He's captured by the Babylonians. He's brought into prison, spends many years in a dark, miserable prison in Babylon, forgotten and without hope. I mean, you know, it's funny. You know, I I sometimes wonder when we get prisoners here in the United States that they protest their their conditions in prison. And, you know, I'm not saying prison's a nice place. I haven't been to prison Fortunately, um, I probably could have a few times, but I've never been to prison. Um, I've been to the county jail, again, not as a guest, but 
a visitor. <laughs> um, and I know that things aren't pleasant. I, I mean, I know that. But I always think about people that protest the conditions. And, you know, they, they get meals every day. They get a clean bed to sleep on. You know, they, I mean, it's crowded, yeah, but, I mean, the conditions are pretty good. You go to some other countries, and it's not good at all. You know, you hear about that notorious prison in, in Iran where that one pastor who's, you know, he's an American. They actually go to a Calvary Chapel in Boise, Idaho. And, and they, anyways, he's over in Iran. He's in that prison. And uh, it's a miserable place. They torture you, you know. I mean, it's, it's terrible. Well, I don't think Babylon was like, like the United States where they got all these rights, civil rights and all that. I bet you it was just as miserable and probably worse, judging by what the Babylonians did. So here's this Jeconiah guy. And it's because of his sin and because of his disregard of God and because of his wickedness that he's there. And, I mean, what hope does he have? He's in prison for the rest of his life. But this guy, this king, comes to power and sets him free. Wow. Evil Merodach. Now, evil, it sounds like he's a bad guy, right? It means evil. It's like evil whatever. Um, He was the son of... And he was the successor to the throne of Nebuchadnezzar. Merodach, also known as Marduk, was the Babylonian god that was considered the universal deity. And evil Merodach literally means soldier or servant of Merodach. So basically, this, this man, this, this son of Nebuchadnezzar, his name is basically means he's the Babylonian version of the servant of God. I think it's fascinating that this is in here. Um, Now, some suggest that evil Merodach was a wicked son. They go, well, look at his name. No, it's not because of his name. Evil doesn't mean wicked in this sense. It means, you know, whatever, soldier or servant. But some suggest that this guy was a wicked son. And do you remember the story in Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar was so proud and he kind of glorified himself? And so God said, okay... I'm gonna. You're gonna spend seven years like a wild animal under the stars of heaven, and his, hair, you know, his hair and his claws grew out, and he just, you know, he basically was like a wild beast for seven years, and then his sanity came back to him, and he humbled himself before God. Well, some say that his son took over the throne while he was in this state, and when he finally came to his senses, and God gave him back his throne, that he sent his son to prison where his son befriended Jeconiah in prison. And then when Nebuchadnezzar died and the son became the king, then he remembered Jeconiah. That's what some people say. We don't really know. That's kind of a theory. There's another theory. Others suggest that this guy, Evil Merodach, befriended Daniel and became a friend of Daniel. And as a result of that, he became sympathetic to Jeconiah out of fear and respect of Jehovah. And so then when his dad died, he went and he released Jeconiah from jail. Again, speculation. No one really knows the exact reason why. We just have the facts here of what he did. This is why. Uh, this is what I want to get to, though. This guy, Evil Merodach, I believe, is an Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ. It's another example of Jesus in the Old Testament. Look at what evil Merodach did for Jeconiah. The first thing he did, he lifted up the head of Jehoiakim. That's a Hebrew phrase, to lift up the head. It means to comfort, to cheer, 
and to make happy. And you know, when you and I are in sin and we're in bondage to sin and then, you know, you're in despair and Jesus comes to you and he forgives you of your sin and he cleanses you and he gives you eternal life. I mean, that is, your, your, your head's lifted up. You have the joy of your salvation. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. Jesus Christ does that for sinners. Remember the, ver, uh, the woman that was caught in adultery? Remember they were trying to snag Jesus on a technical issue? And so they, they, they kind of set it up so this woman was caught in adultery. They didn't drag the guy over to Jesus, but they grabbed the woman, brought her over to Jesus, and said, hey, what do we do with her? She was caught in the very act of adultery. And that meant, you know, in Judea, Ju, uh, Judaic law, that meant that she should be stoned. Actually, both of them, but of course the guy was not there. She would be stoned uh, for stoned to death for that sin. And you know the story. Jesus kind of knelt down and started writing on the ground. There's speculation about what he was writing, but, you know, uh, he said the first one without sin cast a stone. And, and as he was writing on the ground, they, they started leaving. The oldest guys started leaving first, and finally the younger guys to where everybody left. Nobody was there to accuse her anymore. And when all her accusers left in John chapter 8, it says, When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus, <laughs> He comforts sinners. That's why I love that Psalm 3 3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. And he speaks comfort to people. He didn't condemn her. He doesn't condemn you or I either. Well, evil Merodach also brought him out of prison. You know, in Jesus' ministry early on in Luke chapter 4, he goes to the synagogue, and one of the traditions in the synagogue was they would, they would pick one of the men in the, in the synagogue, one of the members, and they'd give him the scroll, and he would read from the scroll, and then he would do a little teaching on it. And so this happened this one particular Sabbath. Jesus is in the synagogue, and so the, they give him the scroll. Say, hey, you know, read something and talk about it. Tell us about it. And so Jesus began reading out of Isaiah this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to set sinners free. Evil Merodach also spoke kindly to him. And of course, Jesus was speaking kindly to that woman caught in adultery. But Jesus spoke tenderly, and compassionately to all those who were downtrodden and brokenhearted. In fact, he was accused of being a friend of of wine-bibbers and gluttons and sinners and tax collectors. I mean, that was his reputation, man. You're friends with all those people that are the low part, low down, you know, the people that everybody wants to stay away from, that they hate. But that's because Jesus spoke compassion to them 
And the people were just drawn to him because of that. We read in Luke 4.22, So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? I wonder if people think that about you and I. Do we speak gracious words to people or are we condemning and, you know, hard and rough around the edges? Or, or, or do we speak grace, grace to people? Jesus did. Evil Moradach, he gave him, gave uh, Jehoiakim a more prominent seat than the other princes. Not only did evil Moradach release Jeconiah from prison, but he elevated him to a place of prominence. Do you know when Jesus returns to set up his earthly kingdom, the Bible says that you and I are going to be placed in a place of prominence, that we're going to reign and we're going to rule with Jesus? Evil Moradach changed, gave him new, you know, gave him uh, new new clothing, new garments, exchanged his prison garments for, you know, new clothes. Can you imagine? He probably they probably didn't do laundry, so I mean, it's probably stinky, rotten. You know, how many years wearing the same prison clothes? You come out, and he and he he says, "Just take that clothes away, burn it, you know, whatever, bury it, whatever. Give him some fresh, clean clothes." You know, our sins cling to you and I like filthy garments. And yet the Bible says that you and I, when we come to Jesus in repentance, he clothes us in robes of righteousness. Jesus exchanges our rotting garments with his clean white robes of his righteousness. He exchanges our wickedness, our sinfulness, and gives us his righteousness. That's what that's speaking about. Not only did he do that for Jehoiakim, but... He gave uh, Jehoiakim ate reg- bread regularly before the king. In other words, he was in the king's presence, and the king fed him. It was like he was like he could sit at the king's table and eat with the king all the days of his life. And you know that's another thing that you and I have as believers: we have the privilege and the opportunity to come to the Lord and sit at His table at any time, as often as we need to, in prayer and in his word, and we can get that daily fresh bread from him every day. What a blessing that we have. We have the ability to do that. Psalm 23.5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Man, anytime you've got things going terrible in your life, you can turn to the Lord, and he's right there. He says, come on, sit down. Let's, let's have a meal together. Let's, let's commune together. Let's fellowship. He never says, I'm busy. I'll get back to you later. Or, you know, set up an appointment with my secretary and if I can fit you in, you know. We do that with him, right? And if I can fit you in, Jesus, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pray real quick. You know, I only got five minutes, you know. We do that to him, but you know what? He never does that to us. Because you want to come to me? I'm here. I'm here for you. Not only that, but you and I can celebrate communion as often as we like. Now, we do it here the first Sunday of every month, and I was just reminded two weeks ago that I forgot the first Sunday of this month because July was just kind of weird. I, I, it just slipped my mind, so we didn't do it. Um, but normally here, the first Sunday of the month, we have communion. But, you know, it's not like, well, I can only do it on the first Sunday of the month. You can have communion as often as you want. You don't have to do it here at church. You can do it with your own family. You can get together a fellowship, a couple brothers or sisters or whatever. You can get together and go, like, hey, let's celebrate communion together. You can do that anytime you want. There's no restrictions 
on that. You can celebrate communion as often as you like. And what we do when we celebrate communion, it reminds ourselves afresh every time of Christ's sacrifice for our sin. And it reminds us every time we do it, man, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for us. And you have that blessing, that opportunity to do that as often as you want. Now think about this. There is no mention in the Bible about anything that Jeconiah did to deserve this. I mean, he was cursed. He was sent into prison. He blew it. I mean, he was guilty as charged, and, and he, was being, he was punished, and he was bearing the consequences for his actions. And he would have died in prison with no hope other than this king who lifted him up out of his despair, you know, gave him new clothes, let him feed it, eat at his table, and, and blessed him. You know what that is, description of, that's a picture of? It's grace. I mean, it's God's unmerited favor toward us. No, nothing that we've done to deserve God's love. That's why we sang this morning. I love that. You know, he loved us. And we love him, but he loved us first. He loved you and I, even when, you know, Jesus never says, okay, you've got these sins in your life, you deal with that sin, and then you can come to me. Jesus takes you as you are. Whatever sinful condition you're in this morning, Jesus will take you this morning. He says, come to me, and I'll, I'll give you new life, and I'll, I'll change your life. Now, he changes your life, but he doesn't expect you to clean up to come to him. He'll take you as you are. So point five, and this is the last point. There is hope for lost sinners in Jesus Christ. I want you guys to stand up, and I'm going to read this passage of Scripture. And we're just going to reflect on it, and then we're going to pray. Again, this is in the Old Testament. You know, it's interesting. A lot of times people... They think about God in the New Testament, okay, you know, or, or I mean Jesus. And they go, oh, he's, you know, the son of God. He, you know, he taught us to turn the other cheek when someone strikes us. And, you know, he's the suffering servant. And all he talks about is love and everything. And then we have the God of the Old Testament that tells the Israelites, wipe out the Canaanites. Men, women, and children, don't leave any animals. And all these blood sacrifices. And it's like, man, God's psychotic, it seems like. Because here's this God that, you know, demands blood and wants to wipe out all the wicked people and everything. And then you have Jesus, this loving Savior, the Lamb of God. And you go, well, that almost seems like there's two different gods there. But there's not. You see, the God of the Old Testament is a God of love. In fact, that's why he sent, he's the one that sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And so I want to read this passage to you, and it's how God revealed himself to his people. It's in Psalm 103. You can find it in other passages because it's like in three or four different places in the Old Testament. But in Psalm 103, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as, high, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. 
As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Wow. 